Welcome to Gigami. Today's guest is Isla Owen. Isla is one of the UK's most experienced and successful music supervisors, having set up and led the music division at the advertising agency BBH. She founded the most radicalist.com blog and co-chaired the UK and European Guild of Music Supervisors. In recent years, Isla has crossed the line into sync. She oversees the European Sync and Creative Services teams at Warner Chapel Music Publishers and now spends a lot of time pitching to music supervisors. Okay, hello and welcome to Gigami. My guest today is Isla Owen. Isla, thank you for your time. And how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. It's Friday. It's Friday. I'm feeling that Friday mood myself, actually. Um, could we could we start by um, explaining what a music supervisor does? And how did you become one? Uh, absolutely. Well, I didn't realise that music supervision was a thing. Um, it's, it's a relatively newish job title, although it's, it's the, the craft itself has been around for, for decades now. The actual sort of vocation of being a music supervisor has only been properly recognised maybe in the past 25 years or so, 30 years at the most. And then prior to that, there are obviously sort of music producers and consultants that worked on projects. But within within the UK music industry, which is where I first got started in my career, I kind of just happened upon it. And um, I was always drawn to, I was always drawn to music, always obsessed with music. And I was a violinist growing up and really wanted to work in the music industry when I moved to London. So I started out sort of working at recording studios and then I started doing some label management, working at independent record labels. And then I found out about this thing called music supervision, which is kind of a dream come true because I I, uh, am obsessed with film as well and, and TV series and I just absolutely love the idea of pairing music to picture um, but I didn't really understand or appreciate what went into it and um, sort of how I would conceivably get into something like that. I had been working at a record label where we had Japanese uh, Japanese electronic artists and J-pop artists signed to the label and so I kind of I knew a bit about that scene but you know I certainly didn't didn't realize that that was kind of going to be somewhat of a catalyst for me getting into music supervision. Um, and then it, it transpired that they needed a music consultant on Jonathan Ross's Panorama series. This is 18 years ago, maybe. And they needed they needed help with someone that was familiar with with J-pop and, and that sort of Japanese scene. And so that was kind of my first break. And I, I was completely obsessed from the start. I still didn't quite know how I was going to make a living from it. What, what, what did they ask you to do? What did Jonathan Ross ask you to do? Well, it was the production company. It was the producer. It wasn't Jonathan. It was a producer. But basically, I needed to provide, and this was, I wouldn't even call this music supervision. At this point, it was sort of music consulting. So I gave my opinion on which which, uh, tracks would work specifically for different scenes within the show. Um, based on what the what the narrative was for that particular episode. So if they were doing sort of if they were doing heavy metal or or um, or sort of Japanese rock or, or electronica or talking about Shibuya, uh, which is a sort of cool part of Tokyo and there's a, a big sort of electronic scene there, then I would then I would sort of put together playlists for for those particular scenes. But it was you know it it didn't I didn't realize that this was going to open up doors in the way that it did. Because at that point, you know, this was almost 20 years ago, I still didn't 
I still didn't really see music supervisors as a visible part of the music industry. So, so then um, I, I applied for a job at Princess Productions, which at the time was making a, a, the breakfast show Rise. I don't know if you remember that show. I that do, was sort yeah. of done by Ian Lee and Kate Lawler and, and Edith Bowman in the first one. And came in for an interview and got the job. And that was initially as a music coordinator. And then I worked there for a period of time and it went well and, and I was promoted to music supervisor. And that was a lot more involved on, on both sides of the equation in terms of clearance as well as the sort of creative pitching. And so I would work with the script that was that was created by the editorial team for each daily show. And, and I would look for music cues. Um, and sometimes that would be commercial music and we would need to clear them. And, it, and hilariously, this was back in the days of facts. So <laughs> you would have to actually get music clearances very quickly because it was a daily show via fax. And it was, you know, it was a mix of, of production library music and uh, commercial music. But yeah, that was kind of my introduction to an actual sustainable career in music supervision. But at that point, it still was relatively niche. And then uh, in late 2003, I heard about I heard about a, a new venture with uh, advertising agency BBH, uh, BBH London, which was uh, is the advertising agency responsible for all of the greatest um, sort of music uses from the 80s and 90s. So all of the Levi's campaign, you know, Nick Kamen, who sadly passed away a couple of days ago, Levi's Laundrette and Spaceman Babylon Zoo and sort of, you know, all of the top uh, career launching music singles that came out of advertising came out of BBH. They were creating a joint venture called Leap Music at the time. And I heard about the creation of it. I didn't even know whether or not they were starting to hire people, but I contacted Francis Royal, who uh, was the head of production, head of TV at BBH at the time in 2003. I sent my CV to her sort of blindly and uh, got called in for uh, a meeting um, sort of shortly thereafter. And I was speaking to the, the, the founder of Leap, which was Richard Kirstein at the time, and ended up being offered a job. And so all of a sudden I sort of had gone from television to, well, I went from sort of recording studios to labels to television to live television and then into advertising. And I knew less than nothing about the advertising industry. When I got to BBH, um, I, I had to quickly learn um, about advertising and how music supervision fits into that. And to, to answer your original question about what music supervision is, it really varies. It's not the same thing within each context. So within film and TV and advertising and gaming, the way music supervision is approached is, is all very different. But in a nutshell, if you're a music supervisor, you are a creative, I would say first and foremost, but just as equally important, you are a negotiator, you are business savvy, you're commercially savvy, so you're looking for the best deal. Um, you're a translator, so you have, to, you have to work with the creative team or the director to translate from, you know, you know, it, they say, oh, I want it to sound like pizza or I want it to sound like cloud 
you have to you have to try to translate that into something that doesn't sound like nonsense and that, that can be understood by musicians and by producers and composers. So in its simply simplest terms, when you sync music to picture, which in the industry is called sync, you would generally nowadays employ a music supervisor to oversee the process. So it's kind of like being a film producer. Film producers have to get involved in the commercial and business side of it, but they also have a, a creative point of view. Um, so that's that's what a music supervisor does. And, um, you know, I was saying, and unfortunately, some people that, that call themselves music supervisors might be very, very talented with creative, but not necessarily sort of buttoned down on the business end. And, and then sometimes the opposite, where someone is a great business negotiator, but isn't particularly creative. So I, I think that a true music supervisor can do both equally well and is known for both equally well. I think we should point out, although you, you've had a long career in music supervision, you've actually moved on, haven't you, into a, a different area. Do you want to just explain briefly? Yeah. Um, so I I was at BBH, jumping back to where I was talking about how I got into doing music for advertising. I was at BBH for 15 years and I started up after Leap ended I started up Black Sheep Music which is uh, BBH's in-house music division and so I, I was there for 15 years and then at the end of 2019 I left BBH and I started uh, at a music publisher Warner Chapel where I currently am and I'm, I'm kind of doing the sort of photographic opposite of what I was doing as a music supervisor. So instead of instead of being pitched to, I am pitching towards. So um, I I am representing the amazing catalog of songs and songwriters and talent that we have at Warner Chapel and working with music supervisors and and brands and and film production companies to get our music heard and and synced to those projects. So it's the, it's the other side of the, it's the other link in the chain between music and the production. The sync agent represents, sync uh, exec represents the music and the music supervisor represents the production. And between them, they negotiate the music to go into the production. Yeah, I mean, that kind of, that kind of leads into the process. Do you want me to talk a bit about yeah, the process? please. So, um, I mean, it's, it is quite different between film and TV and advertising. The The role that the music supervisor plays is crucial, but within within advertising, there's a million different stakeholders involved. And in fact, with film and TV, it's the same. But with advertising, you've got, you know, first of all, you've got the, the ad agency that's created, the copywriters that have created the script. You've got the creative directors who are overseeing the the creatives. You've got um, the sort of ECD, who's the the top creative director within the agency, who who will also have a point of view. You'll have the producer at the agency side, but then on the production company side, you'll have the director. You'll have their producer, and then that's not mentioning the client, which is generally from an advertising point of view a brand. And you know the brand will have a whole list and hierarchy of people involved in making decisions about the film, the music in the film, the way the music plays in the film. And, you know, sometimes the decision is frustrating. It can be, it can be at times exhilarating when the client gets the creative vision and the point of view, but it can also be super frustrating because, you know, you thought you had the track or or you thought you had worked with a composer or producer to create a demo that was 
you know, undeniably killer and uh, the client decides to go with something that their eight-year-old kid likes better. <laughs> and that's actually, <laughs> that's actually, you know, most creative directors in advertising will have uh, a war story that's similar to that, where, you know, the, the, the film that they've been working on has been um, disrupted by the client's point of view on the music, but ultimately they're the client, they're paying for it. Um, you know, they they have to answer to their customers and make sure that it's in line with what they want. And so, yeah, I mean, that's just advertising. And then, um, you know, the, the, there's the deal negotiation part of it. So, you know, there's if there's a, a track shortlisted um, to be used on an ad, then there's the whole process of seeking um, quotes from the rights holders and uh, sort of ballparking, um, passing that information on to the agency and then to the client and then going through the formal approval process, which can take, you know, three hours uh, or it could take three months or longer, just depending on whether or not the approval party is on a yacht somewhere. Just just going back to the beginning, though, what part of the project do you get pulled into if, when you're at BBH? Would you get pulled into it before the film is made or is it after the film is made? And they say, can you now find a piece of music for this? It's both. So I was in a really um, unique position because I I was working within BBH. I was a BBH employee, but we were a separate sort of little business within the business. Um, so myself and my team were brought in sometimes before scripts were written. You know, when when creative teams are sort of spitballing and, and trying to figure out whether or not a, a particular piece of music can be used as a centerpiece for a script. A lot of creative teams and creative directors write their scripts to music and there's a very specific direction that the script will take because of a piece of music. So it, we, it really varied. We always pushed to be involved as early as possible so that we could make the most difference and, and help secure the music that uh, they wanted because the more time you have generally the better although sometimes if you have too much time if you start a project like six months in advance you can end up doing you know 20 different music searches and exhausting it and then you just come back to square one and they go with the track that was on the on the script so um we, you know to answer your question we do get involved very early and sometimes like th the day that an ad is going out, they, you know, if a, if a track is not cleared in time, we can then be brought in to, to find something else and clear it. So it, it really ranges from before the creative is made and like to up until when it's about to launch. And how do, how do the a mixture of the creatives who are making the film and the, and the, and the text, the copy and the client, how do they communicate to you what they want? Do they show you a piece of music and say, I want something like, I want this piece of music, I want something like this? Or do they say, you said something about, uh, we'd like something that sounds like pizza. Is, is, it, is, is it as broad as that? It depends on the creative team. And it depends on how confident and comfortable the creative team is in, um, in putting a music brief together. But generally, at the beginning of a project, um, you know, we would sit down, I would sit down with the creative team and, and the producer within the agency and talk to them about what the brief is and talk to them about the script and how the music needs to fit within the script and support the script. And then uh, usually they will have written a music brief. If they haven't written a music brief, then myself or my team would write a music brief based on 
the actual in-person briefing that we've had with the creative team. What what goes into a a music creative brief? How would you then describe it out to the the music world? So let's say the creative said, I I need it to sound like little fluffy clouds. And that's, that's actually fairly concrete compared to some of the briefs we've had. But I think that if you're musically inclined, and this is where if you do have some musical training, it's very helpful if you're a music supervisor um, so that you can be that translator. Um, but if we're briefing out to rights holders uh, and looking for existing tracks, we don't necessarily need to be as musically prescriptive as we would with, say, we're briefing out a composer, which is another thing that we did and we can get into. But for just a licensed music brief where we're looking for a specific type of track, that, that's for music that's been recorded already, basically. Yes. Um, so, you know, it, for for the the fluffy clouds passing by brief, you might talk about the genre. You might talk about the arrangement, the mood. Um, you might talk about lyrics, uh, if there are specific lyrics like peaceful or relaxed or chilled or sunny. Um, it all has to, the way the music works within a script and a, and a film, um, it, 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 it's so subjective and that's where director and the creative team, um, are, are sort of pivotal because the way they see the music may not be, and the way they see the need for music and how the music needs to work may not be obvious. So an example of this is... Uh, if you're fami- familiar with uh, the very famous musical Torch song, Send in the Clowns. When I was at BBH, I was working on uh, a project for Audi, which was called Clowns. And the, the script, uh, it was it was essentially don't let clowns on the road, as in sort of jerks that don't know how to drive and are sort of driving like maniacs, um, don't don't let them sort of ruin your day because you're you're in an Audi and you're sort of protected from you're in a bubble protected from all the clowns on the road and the actual film itself is very very silly (laughs) um I don't know if you've ever seen it but it's incredibly silly you've got actual real life clowns um driving around in clown cars (laughs) crashing into each other making massive mess and it's 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 vaudeville I mean it's slapstick really but then we worked with um, we worked with a record producer, composer, arranger named David Coston, um, and the Irish singer songwriter Lisa Hannigan to create um, a, a, an absolutely exquisite re-record of "Send in the Clowns," which, by the way, is published by Warner Chapel. <laughs> nice advert. It's a fantastic song. Oh, it's just it, it's one of the best, best ever. But the arrangement of the song was very slow and and it's very serious i mean it's a torch song it's it's absolutely heartbreaking and so it's the juxtaposition of the silliness and the insanity of of the visuals and of the the film with the starkness and and sort of um poignant heart crushing nature of the song that you would think wouldn't work you would think it would be um, there'd be some kind of dissonance there, but it, it worked perfectly. It just it kind of uh, it, it's counterintuitive, but I think the best creative teams and directors just get it, yeah. um, and music supervisors can add to that um, by bringing in the talent and suggesting music and suggesting songs. Can we just talk about the um, looking outwards into the world when you're trying to find music? 
there's sync agents mm-hmm. that you, you you deal with who've got probably access to um, recordings have already happened. But who else do you go out and, and um, talk to to find music? The way that uh, a music supervisor and the way that I engage with talent and the way we found talent um, and existing tracks was usually through labels and publishers um, or occasionally sync agents, but more likely labels and publishers. But it, it was also because as a supervisor, you're constantly in contact with managers and artists themselves and producers that work on projects, sometimes music production companies. There's a whole um, community of artists that work within this world and writers that work within this world. So, you know, to find existing tracks, you know, myself and my team are sort of, you know, music nerds. And so we'd be sort of very aware of all the different new releases and old stuff and, you know, classic music that, um, you know, fits the bill for all the different types of crazy scripts that would come through our door. But in terms of finding finding out about new artists and new talent, that was, you know, very much guided by our own curiosity. So, um, and I think that's really important, you know, just being pitched to, anyone can kind of do that. But I think a music supervisor is sort of like a, like an anthropologist almost. You kind of need to get into a particular scene and understand it and understand not how the music will work well to picture and within the context of the script, but also what is the cultural significance of that particular song? How can that, how can that song itself um, evoke nostalgia? I mean, John Lewis were, you know, genius at doing this and their, their music supervisors are genius at doing this because they will work with uh, a very nostalgic song from probably my generation <laughs> of a certain vintage they'll sort of they'll they'll work with those classic songs um like the smiths for instance this is years ago where they they re-recorded please 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 let me get what i want um or um uh what was the uh, power of love mm-hmm. um, Hollywood song. and and those songs are still quite um, powerful and emotive and, and sort of evoke a period of time when I was younger but when they're subverted and, and created it's sort of turned into very stripped back sort of uh, ethereal vocals it brings a completely different meaning to the song and and so I think it's understanding the the cultural triggers and understanding who the audience is that's going to be watching something is part of what really goes into making a powerful sync, a powerful use of music. I can see that. It's almost like the jarring that you were talking about with the sending the clowns. It's it, it has its own life, the piece of music, and the, and the film has its own life. And when things clash, sometimes interesting things happen. Yeah, and I and I think that the most interesting examples of music used in film or or TV or advertising is generally where there's a lot of layers. There's a lot of different elements to it that make it relevant or interesting. So, you know, you can have the song itself has its own anthropology, its own life, um, the lyrics and the time period and all of that. But then the the artist that's actually singing the song could be an up and coming artist, you know, from Belfast. And then, you know, they've got their own story. And so, you know, I think it's when you combine 
different time periods and and sort of uh, interpretations that are not expected, those those can make for really powerful uses. If you're um, negotiating to use a piece of music, you've got to talk to um, the record company on one side if it's a recording that's already been made. Yes. And always a publisher. Yes. And I guess if you're making um, a new recording like with Lisa, then you've got to deal with who owns those rights and who's paying for those recordings. Yes. So it, it, it varies depending on whether or not the artist that you're working with is signed, is, has like an exclusive recording contract. Sometimes they have a clause in their contract which allows them to, to work on projects where they don't acquire the recording. And then sometimes the, the producer or, or the arranger will acquire the recording. It, it just depends. But all of the, the artists and musicians involved will, will uh, participate in the income from the recording. So um, all rights need to be negotiated in advance of actually ever creating a demo. Um, we we would always put together a deal memo. Uh, not all music supervisors do this, but we're pretty buttoned down at BBH. <laughs> um, so we would always draft a deal memo that was like a heads of agreement that outlined the the term, the territory, the media, um, the demo fee. All of that would be outlined prior to actually even doing a demo, and then you know agreed to by whoever we're working with and that's that's on the sort of bespoke angle if we're looking to license a particular track that you know the client or the director or producer have fallen in love with then we are drafting deal memos that go to the publisher and to the label or publishers depending on how many writers are on that song sometimes it can be with hip-hops you know if the samples are even cleared it, it can be like six or seven different publishers or writers so I think um, the process for clearance is is almost always easiest on the record side. The publishing can take a minute, but we would we would negotiate we would have to negotiate that to to formal approval prior to us ever using a piece of music for sure. How, how do you put a value on the piece of music? How do you know how much money that you've got to play with? It's experience generally. If you're if you're a supervisor and you've worked in the business for a period of time, you will know how much a Michael Jackson track might cost or a Beatles track. I mean, you know, the 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 value is generally set years prior to, you know, me ever getting my hands on it because there are precedents. And I think the precedents change with the market. So if a particular catalog is becoming less used or maybe less relevant, then the price usually drops um, because, you know, they're trying to sort of recoup on on an advance or they're trying to, you know, sort of increase the revenue for that particular catalog. But I think that a lot of it is done on precedent. And so if you're a supervisor, you and you and you have, a, you know, a reasonable amount of experience in the business, you'll know sort of what to what to expect. So generally, prior to prior to a, a campaign even being greenlit when I was at BBH, um, producers would come talk to me and ask, what should I put in my budget? for? Like, we're looking for a super well-known track. It's going to be a UK and Ireland-only campaign for a year, all media. And I would have to put my finger in the air and say, if, like, you want super, super, super well-known track, then I would say, you know, anywhere upwards of a million pounds. But it 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 generally would be more like, you know, anywhere upwards to sort of 
maybe 400 or 500,000 pounds. And a lot of that is um, obviously you have to split and there's two sides. And if that's the masters and the, the publishing, yeah. Yes. Um, but but also there's union fees. So if, if it's um, if it's a US recording, you've got SAG and the AFFM to contend with. If it's a UK recording, you've got musicians union fees. So there's a lot to take into consideration. And why, why do they get uh, fees? Well, <laughs> that's a very good question. Um, I don't think we have enough time to discuss unions today, but maybe that's a breakout session. Um, I uh, so so to answer your question, the Screen Actors Guild SAG is very powerful. Um, it's a very extremely powerful entertainment union. They only deal with the way that I've understood it over the years. They only deal with the face, so uh, image and likeness of the face, as well as anyone any vocals. So anyone actually singing that is within SAG jurisdiction, which means anywhere in America, even if they're not SAG members, falls under SAG jurisdiction, um, depending on whether or not it's just a, a foreign usage um, that determines the whether or not you need to negotiate with SAG or if you can do it via rate card. And as I said, it's quite fiddly and complicated. But essentially, it's to uh, remunerate the uh, the session people, the session musicians, session singers, um, sometimes the main singer that maybe it's an old it's an old recording and um, the 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 artist got screwed on their record deal and this isn't a way for them to participate still in sync there's it's quite nuanced and there's a lot of things that go into it but it's essentially to protect um artists and musicians from not participating within the sync fee i guess this is this is one of those neighboring rights isn't it yeah, well, it's kind of neighboring. I mean, that again, that's like even that's contentious. I think it's one of those things that you must include in your estimate when when you're putting together an estimate. If you're a producer, you know, within an agency, or if you're a film producer, you need to be relying on a music supervisor or doing it yourself to to make sure that all of that is accounted for within the estimate. So, so you you've got your budget. You, I guess, you then go out and do the negotiation on both sides. Does one side tend to get paid more than the other? It depends, is the answer. <laughs> um, and the reason why it depends is generally the publisher has more sway. And the reason being is re-records. So let's say there's um, a really famous song by the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, and you've got the original Rolling Stones or Beatles recording of that song, then it's almost guaranteed that both sides will get exactly the same. And when that happens, it's called Most Favoured Nations, or MFN for short, which a lot of people in the business will say. And essentially with Most Favoured Nations, it means that neither side shall take less than the other. So it, if you get ballpark quotes through um, from a publisher and a label on a particular track for, for usage, Please don't make the schoolboy error that I made when I first started out in music supervision, assuming that um, the lower quote was what you would go with. Um, it, it always goes it always goes upwards. So if Sony quotes 30k and Warner's quotes uh, Warner Chapel quotes 50k, 
um, but you know that both sides are going to go at MFN, then that means both sides will be 50K. Yeah, gotcha. That's an example of of when recording and publishing get the same. The uh, tricky thing is when there's a very famous recording of a song that maybe isn't necessarily the original artist that sang it. So uh, an example of this will be Jeff Buckley and Hallelujah. Um, so Hallelujah is a, a Leonard Cohen song, which I believe is still published by Sony ATV. And the recording, the, the Leonard Cohen recording is not the one that became the most commercially famous. It was the Jeff Buckley version of it. So even though Jeff Buckley was not the original artist who wrote the song, I would say that Jeff Buckley's estate, because sadly he passed away, I would say his estate would probably insist on uh, most favored nations with the publishing. But conversely, if you have a super famous song and an emerging artist covers it, then you know you can almost definitely uh, expect the the recording to not go MFN and, and for the recording to take less than the publishing. And that makes a big difference to music supervisors and, and producers and directors because they're always trying to get things within budget. So as a result, publishers tend to have a bit more power because they know that they can re-record if they need to. Can I just talk briefly about up-and-coming musicians? Do you, do you ever deal directly with people who are doing a, a DIY approach? Or do you typically go through your mate, you know, the network of the the publisher and the uh, record company? I definitely have. I mean, when I was at BBH, I, I ran a, a music blog that was started up by us at BBH called The Most Radicalist, and that that was all emerging artists. So it, it was completely separate to the advertising part of what we did. It was just an editorial tastemaker blog. But as a result of, of having that sort of side project up, I, myself and my team were always speaking to up and coming bands and artists. It was kind of an outlet for us to have that connection because we'd be reviewing them on the blog. But I think that's quite unusual. I, I think most music supervisors, they will have contact with, with uh, up and coming artists and bands, but they tend to probably deal with management or labels or publishers a bit more because it acts acts as... Um, almost like a filter because I mean there you know there's extraordinary talent out there and you don't need to have a manager necessarily to to be considered but it helps because you know supervisors rely on managers to kind of curate um, you know the sort of top talent that they want to be considered and to be heard supervisors are like always ridiculously busy it, it's one of the one of the ironies of being a music supervisor is you think you're going to get to listen to your favorite music all the time and it's just not true because you're you're or, or listen to music all the time and it, it's it can't be the case because part of the time you're negotiating deals and you're sort of taking you know taking quotes and and trying to negotiate something down and clear something in time for a deadline and you know you you don't get to listen to as much music as you would like to so you need people to help sort of curate it but having said that, I, I have, you know, personally many, many times listened to music that has been sent to me um, by artists. But I would say most of the time I had a connection with them already, like either through the blog or I saw them at a gig. I think, you know, a lot of music supervision and music supervisor's job is to 
is to hear about things word of mouth and 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 actually go to events, even though that's been impossible for the past year. Is there anything a musician could do to catch your eye or your ear? I, yes, um, I think, and I used to always sort of talk to artists and bands um, because the most radicalists had a, or maybe they're still doing it. Um, they probably didn't do it last year because of COVID, but um, we'd have a, a a night at the Great Escape where we'd have sort of different artists that we'd reviewed on the blog on as a lineup. I think getting getting out there at sort of on club circuits, on sort of gig circuits, at uh, new music festivals like the Great Escape, South by Southwest, a little bit less, it's quite commercial now, but um, actually, you know, Austin City Limits, that's America, doing things where you are being seen out and about as opposed to just sort of floating around digitally um, is super helpful. Making sure you have a great sort of curated selection of your music on SoundCloud. You know, I, I nowadays I also look at TikTok. Um, uh, really good press reviews or blog write-ups um, is also helpful. And I think it, it really, if you don't have a manager a lot or, or a PR working your release, a lot of it just comes down to sheer bloody mindedness and just like not giving up and wanting to get, you know, write-ups because it's a, it's a snowball effect with blogs and, and press people's, you know, and journalists, you, you get a couple of good reviews and then the buzz starts to grow. And then the more good blog posts and reviews that you have, uh, the more likely it is that you'll get a good write up next time. And that, that all, once that sort of buzzing and, and you're gigging, that all starts to be noticed by A&R people, by supervisors, um, sometimes by sync agents. So yeah, I mean, it's, there's a lot you can be doing, but a lot of it has, it's hard work. And it's not for the faint of heart, I would say. And does that include contacting music supervisors directly? You can try, but I would say most music supervisors would rather find out about you themselves <laughs> than have you sort of emailing their inbox saying, hey, I've got a track. I mean, you can do that, but if you do it, make sure that you're really confident with what you're presenting. Because often, as you know, the sort of saying goes, that first impression lasts a lifetime. And I, and I think if you, it, it's it's somehow um, more. It, there's more cut through if it's coming via uh, almost like a gatekeeper, like a manager or a PR or something. When it's coming from the artists themselves, obviously, you know, they're making themselves incredibly vulnerable which is an amazing thing, it's an unbelievably brave thing. Like I, I am in awe of all the musicians and writers and, and artists that do that. I just think you need to be very realistic about the fact that most music supervisors barely have time to go to the toilet. And, uh, <laughs> it, and so if they're, if they're going to listen to something, it's probably generally going to be either music that they need to listen to for a particular project they're working on or it's going to be a, a sort of curated selection from a, a manager or or a, a label that they've asked them to listen to um it's i think um when it comes from culture so when a supervisor finds out about music from culture um at gigs festivals blogs etc um it feels more powerful than just cold, cold emailing a music supervisor. Good, good advice. Isla, we, we typically um, finish up these chats with, with a question, which is with, with all your sort of time interacting with musicians, 
are there any things that you've spotted them doing, such as good, any good habits, attitudes, the way they go about their work that you've noted and you think would be useful for up and coming musicians to, to use for themselves? Well, the sort of general stuff that I mentioned before about getting yourself out there, you know, getting good write-ups and blogs and going to the right sort of new music festivals and getting gigs on the right circuits, you know, that, that I think is just good uh, practical starter kit advice. But in terms of uh, musicians and producers and writers that and artists that work within film and TV and advertising, you know, you, you if you do want to be involved in music for sync you have to remember that it's not your project you have to leave your ego at the door <laughs> so the the you know the most successful successful musicians not just within sync but just in general you know that when they're collaborating with other writers and artists y- you have to understand that collaboration is going to make it better but also you know if you're if you're creating music for a specific project um, that's not being paid by you, like that's actually being paid by a client, paid for by a client or a, a film studio, etc. Then you have to leave your ego at the door and be very uh, magnanimous about taking critical feedback. Don't take it personally. Um, you have to have a really positive attitude. Think outside the box. One thing I would say, if if you're a composer um, creating music for picture, for film or TV, or, or particularly advertising. Always think outside of the box using the creative brief or the music brief, but always also include a safer option. So providing more than one demo idea is always preferable because um, the, the the composers that I've noticed um, having their, their demo actually uh, confirmed for a project, they tend to have provided a few different options. And one of those options is always a bit more wild card than the other ones. So you kind of need to provide both because most creative directors want something that sounds like, doesn't sound ad-y, doesn't sound like something you'd hear on an ad or that's been created specifically for an ad. Like that's the antithesis of what most creatives within ad agencies want. But a lot of clients and brand clients need to sort of err more on the side of caution, tend to be a bit more conservative. So providing more than one option is, is I would say, pretty crucial. Generally, it's a bit more cow- cowboys and Indians nowadays. It's the Wild West in a way that it wasn't before because there's so many different music supervisors working on one particular project. So it's not always just one supervisor working with one agency and one brand. It can be, it can be three or four different music supervision companies doing music searches looking for a specific track or working with composers to create demos. So even if you're a composer that's um, working with one music supervisor and you know that that supervisor has also briefed out three other composers, it doesn't mean you're one of four. It means you're one of four with that supervisor, but there could be two or three other supervisors also being hired to do demos and they might be briefing out a couple people. So there could be 10 different composers pitching on a particular project. Back in the day, you just didn't have as many people doing that. But the flip side is that if you do win the pitch and actually your music is used uh, and the demo goes forward, then the the reward is generally quite high, you know, usually tens of thousands of pounds for a UK and Ireland ad or, or more if it's sort of international. So it's 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 kind of a high stakes, 
high risk game. But but generally, you know, the demo process can go on for weeks or months before you're confirmed as the as the composer for the project. I guess we've largely talked about advertising. Are there any particular differences with with TV and film? Yeah, there's there's quite a few. I mean, I think you're still dealing with a client that pays for it, multiple stakeholders, lots of different creative points of view. You know, it's that old adage of opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one. There's going to be twists and turns. But the big, big difference with film and TV is that, um, particularly with film, is that the music is generally licensed life of copyright or, or in perpetuity because you can't expect a film that's gone out as a, as a finished work of art that's you know sold as DVDs to not have the music on the film anymore it's almost like sort of creating a painting whereas with uh with advertising you generally have an ad that runs for a short-ish term like a year sometimes less occasionally a bit more but there's there's usually options to renew or there's there's always options to renew most of the time in in uh, advertising deals so if you want to use the music again then you have to pay you know the option fee which is generally uh, the initial fee plus 10 or 15 percent on top. But with film and TV, it's different because these these are finished works of art that um, you can't strip the music away, particularly with film. So and, and also the, the process is much, much longer. You know, you can be a composer working on a on a film for six to 12 months, depending on sort of um, how long the post-production period is. You know, likewise with TV, that can be just an ongoing, if it's a series, it can be an on- ongoing project. Uh, so, you know, with, with advertising, it's, it's, uh, it's usually a relatively quick turnaround, which, which can create an enormous amount of stress if you're a supervisor or if you're an agency producer, because um, there's just multi-million pound uh, budgets that go into the media spend and the production budget for for any given sort of big international ad campaign. With film, it's it's the composer or the the music, the actual licensed music. They're not paid quite as much because there's multiple cues. So within a film, you know, you might have a composer that's hired to create the score, but then you'll have maybe. 10 to 12 existing track cues that go within within the film as well. Could you just explain briefly what a cue is? Yeah, so it's just when it's when music is used in a film. You know, if you've got a, a scene where there's silence and there's a couple and they're staring at each other and there's tension growing, then all of a sudden you hear sort of halfway through a tremolo of a violin sort of coming in and then the, you know, sort of violin swell and... and that that's a cue so you you as a as a composer and as a music supervisor you will spot a script for music cues very very early on in the process um so that you can sort of understand uh when is music going to be used in a script how is it going to be used what is the music trying to convey at that particular point in the script so yeah but film and tv there's there's a lot more music a lot uh, a lot more musical cues um, whereas with with advertising generally with with an ad it's just one piece of music occasionally you'll get a couple of different bits of uh, what they call a featured usage so the people in the ads like a radio playing so what's it called diegetic diad 
I always get this word wrong, but it's when you can hear when you can hear music uh, within the context of the script. So it's like music coming out of a radio. Yeah. So occasionally you'll get a couple different pieces of music in an ad, but it's usually just one piece of music. So it's it's kind of more straightforward in that sense, whereas you know a film is just a a much larger prospect. It's a much bigger project. It involves a lot more clearances. It involves a lot more songs and writers and you know the whole ecosystem. I think that I would like to say that although sync and using music in film and TV and advertising gaming is increasingly competitive, and it is for sure, I I would say to, to creators of music out there to take heart because media has become so splintered and fractured and there are so many different outlets now for getting your music heard. Um, you know, sort of aside from DSPs and social media and apps and TikTok and all of that, you've got Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and you've got all of these um, streamers that are creating content and it's only going to increase the amount of uh, entertainment and projects that, where they'll need music and where they'll, they'll be looking for fresh, interesting talent to be featured. So COVID also uh, really squashed a lot of budget. So we're seeing uh, an appetite for, uh, this is from a Warner Chapel point of view, we're seeing an appetite for more of our sort of uh, up and coming frontline writers getting involved in projects, which when COVID was happening was was a bit tricky because advertisers were being very, very safe. They were They were wanting to license famous songs that brought back nostalgia but um, now that things are sort of at least in the UK improving from from the pandemic point of view there's there's more of an opportunity for for up-and-coming musicians and writers and producers to get their music heard because budgets have kind of been squashed and everybody's looking to sort of make economies so I would not be discouraged I would be excited and challenged by the fact that it's so competitive and there's so much going on because you know the the opportunity is, is sort of 10 times more prolific than it than it ever has been brilliant thank you very much Isla. Um, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and and um, offering your experience and advice to to everybody thank you very much for coming on it's, it's a pleasure thank you